Today, as a church, we are jumping back into Gospel of Mark, where we left off from last year. Today, we are starting, in a sense, like a part two of this glorious series in the book of Mark. And as we dive into the word today, one question I want to ask you is this. It's about the chasm between the expectation and reality. What do you do when all your expectations that you had just goes down the drain? Things do not turn out as you expected. And to the degree that your heart was invested, that much more heartache ensues afterwards. How do you respond to that? This kind of trial, no matter what the circumstances, causes us to suffer the great disappointment and heartache. And none of us would volunteer for that. We live to eliminate any disappointment and suffering. That's our mantra. But in this chapter that we are about to see today, you will see a Savior, Jesus Christ, a center of Christianity, hedge straight into what is projected to be a complete suffering complete loss he's disclosing his mission of suffering and as his disciples hear about his mission to passion mission to suffer all they lose it they lose it jesus has fully accepted and he revealed his mission and they are not having it and as a result minor major however you want to call it chaos ensues in this passage that you're about to see Through this chaos that we are going to see today in this passage, we are going to observe and learn and ask three questions. First, we are going to see a great turning point. As Jesus reveals his identity, we are going to learn about who is Jesus all about. In this passage, his identity, his mission will be fully disclosed. We will ask that, who is Jesus all about? And secondly, As Jesus disclosed his identity, you will clearly see that disciples' expectation has not been met. There is unmet expectation in this passage. When that happens in your life, second question I want to ask of you is how do you respond in that unmet expectation? And lastly, third question we are going to ask, how do we bridge the gap in the middle of disappointment and suffering In the middle of expectation and reality, how do you find hope in the middle of this great chasm, in the middle of this great disruption in your life? As you dive in, I pray the truth revealed in the Word of God will speak to your heart and minister to all of us. As you have heard it already, church, this is a relatively lengthy passage, so I especially encourage you today to open up the Word, whether it be cell phone or the hard copy, so then you can really follow along with me to see what the Word of God has to speak to us. So shall we go? Let's go together. First, there is a huge turning point here. Who is Jesus all about? Look, verse 27, how it begins. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On way, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Uh, This Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is taking his disciples to is perhaps one of the most northern points that Jesus ever ministered in his earthly life. And this region of Caesarea Philippi is about approximately 100 miles north of Jerusalem, 
known to be a very pluralistic society. Uh, this city is rumored to be the birthplace of the one of the gods of Pen, who is the god of wild, god of shepherd and flock. And this place is also rumored to be the birth and the lived place of goddess Roma, which is a female deity, uh, which they represent the state of Rome, the city of Rome, and the state of Romans. So these are, because it's a very pluralistic society there, perhaps Jesus is intentionally taking his disciples there. He chose this specific place to reveal his identity. So Jesus asked his disciple, hey, who on this area, who do people say that I am? So verse 28, they replied, some say you are John the Baptist, some say you are Elijah, and some say you are one of the prophets. In other words, they got no idea who you are. They say a bunch of other things. But then Jesus, in the pluralistic society, looks straight into disciples' eyes. What about you? Verse 29, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter jumps right in. You are the Messiah. While in this world they are filled with gods and goddesses, you are not one of those bunch of other prophets or gods or goddesses. You are the Messiah, which means the anointed one, the one I have heard from all my life, the one who is going to come and abolish all the oppression, the one who is going to come and rescue us. All my hope and dreams are in you. You are not the among all other gods, but you are the anointed one. As Peter declares that you are the Messiah, Jesus neither denies nor confronts this identification of him. But Jesus is silent, simply says, don't tell anyone about me. And yet Jesus continues what this Messiahship, anointed one, is all about, 31. He then began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. First, when you look at 31, he said, Son of Man. When you initially hear this title of the Son of Man, it's Jesus accepts that I am the Messiah. That sounds like the talking about his humanity, but no, this is also titled for his divinity. The Son of Man is also used in the book of Daniel that talks about divine God. He's all-powerful God. He says, 713 Daniels, In my vision night I looked, and there before me was like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here he accepts his divine God, calls him, I'm the son of man. And yet, what does he say? Do kings and the gods suffer? No way. But he said he will suffer many things and be rejected. And notice to whom he's suffering. I mean, by whom is he being suffered here? Is he by the worst of the mankind? No. What was known to be the best of the mankind, elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And Jesus speaks plainly. Up to now, this point, all Peter has seen, disciples have seen, Mark has been showing us one through eight, Jesus' power. He casts out the demon. He calms the storm down. He heals the sick. 
And finally, his concealed identity is fully revealed. You are the Messiah. You are the king. You are the anointed one. And he said, yeah, but I'm going to die. You're like, wait a second. What? Kings don't suffer. Gods don't suffer. You rule and reign. Uh, this prediction of his passion, suffering is one of the three that will come in the book of Mark here in 831, 931, in chapter 10, 33, 34. In that saying or passion prediction, disciples' minds are completely stupefied. What? What are you talking about? Suffering? Uh, do you see the, how huge turning point this section is? So far, he's been just eluding who he is. His concealed identity is now disclosed. The one turning point. You always expect king to be a victorious. Another turning point to be actually suffering king. And yet, all people, the glorious expectation, this king is going to come and rescue us. And he's saying, well, actually, I'm going to die. When we use the word turning point, we often use the word as something positive. Man, life was terrible, but I had a turning point. Life was all of a sudden better. But this is completely upside-down turning point. As Jesus reveals identity, disciples are completely stupefied, and they just don't get, what are you talking about? You are not Messiah, the one who is going to rescue us. You are the militant political leader we have been waiting on. But Jesus says, nope, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. That's who I am. That's what I came here for. Why would they be? Uh, let's, let's keep going. So clearly you can see there is unmet expectation, right? That what they thought Messiah to be, all they have seen up to thus far is power. But now he's disclosing, in a sense, if you want to humanly call it weakness, he's suffering and pain. And as Jesus does that, look how disciples respond. Second, unmet expectation. How do you respond? Verse 30, to continue, after he spoke plainly about this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, when we read these passages, those two verses, we often get so shocked. That, oh, boy. Jesus, I, I see that Peter might have gotten it wrong, but you're kind of being harsh. You call Peter Satan? Whoa, Jesus, I mean, I get it, but that's pretty harsh, Jesus. You can say that. I initially thought that. Until I realized the word choice that Mark uses first. If you look at verse 32, he rebuked Peter. I mean, Peter rebuked Jesus, right? The word rebuked used there is a customarily used for rebuking demons. The worst and the ultimate form of evil. And here in Mark's eyes, as he writes, Peter, as if he's parenting Jesus, Jesus, listen, come, come, come here. Let me pull you aside. Listen to me. You're being blasphemous. You are being satanic, perhaps. This is the worst, the rebuke is the strongest word you can imagine. Peter said, you just lost your mind, Jesus. If I can plan, translate to modern language, what are you doing? Peter just lays all that out. Why does Peter do that? Because he's not the Messiah type that he's heard about all his life. As I said multiple times already, he thought Messiah will come, just like many Jewish people at the time and abolish all the oppression and suffering. But Jesus saying, nope, I'm not going to do that. And Peter just alludes this. Something irks him really bad. So now, uh, let's stop playing here, Monday morning quarterback. Let's, let's stop giving our Pete such a hard time about this. But let's think about it ourselves. 
what could possibly be going on Peter's mind? Uh, I can a couple things. One, Peter's very sincere about this, but just sincerely wrong, perhaps. He's very sincere. Hey, I've heard the Messiah will come, and this Messiah will rescue us. And in Peter's eyes, what are you doing? God's going to die? Sure, in the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, their suffering servant has been prophesied. But Peter, oh, based on his tradition and upbringing, what he has been taught, he has no framework of all this. Yes, his expectation is right. When Jesus comes a second time, everything will be well. But in his first coming, he came to suffer. So he has no framework of that, and he just loses it. He's very sincere and passionate for the cause of God, but just sincerely wrong. That could be the case. Or there could be another case. Jesus has to be the God that he wants him to be. Just like sometimes we want our God to be our magic wand when we have a certain agenda that we desperately want to fulfill. Perhaps that's why Jesus is saying, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, verse 33, but merely human concern. In other words, Peter's and disciples also may be saying, hey, you have to be this kingdom victor messiah who's going to rescue us. I don't want to suffer. I want comfort. I want power. I want money. I want privilege. I thought you finally came to give us that success, power, money. All I wanted, rescue us from those wrong Romans. You must be that God. You can't possibly be anything else. Otherwise, if you're not God, you, my captain, I'm following you. But if you get killed and die, where's my money? Where's my comfort? Where's all the expectation I had of you? You must be somebody that I want you to be. Perhaps both of them are going on at the same time. Of sincere expectation, yet also very misled zeal. And also, Peter is like, Jesus, you have to be the one that I'm wanting you to be. And Jesus says in having harshest work, Peter, you can't possibly do that. But church, what about you today? How much do you sometimes insist upon God? God, you have to be the God I want you to be. You have to be the God who will give me money. You have to be the God I'm praying. You have to be the God who will give me promotion. God, you better be my magic wand. I need to be a certain Messiah who will give me peace of mind. I cannot afford you to be somebody else. Why? One of the most fast-spreading types of gospels are prosperity gospel. If you believe this, God will heal you from all your disease. If you believe this, he'll give you all the money. You'll be prosperous to the degree that you believe, to the degree you'll be prosperous. Why? Because we want to believe that way, don't we? Who wants to believe in God? If you believe me, you'll suffer and die. Oh, can you imagine? Uh, election cycle. If you vote me as a president, everything will go down the drain. Life employment rate will skyrocket. And nothing I can do for you, your life will suffer. We'll be like, I don't want you. I don't want to follow that. None of us want to follow that. Yet Jesus is saying what? Hey, that's my mission. And he's calling Peter what? Verse 34 and 35. Then he called the crowd to him along his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, and for the gospel, we save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? While we try to fit God into our agenda, 
God, I am praying this really hard. My expectation of you often are really good, but you must come at this time right now. Sometimes you think that's only for, oh, that's just for people don't know better. Oh, so many of us do that. Why do you always win your argument in your mind? You can justify so many things based on Scripture. All the genocide has been justified based on the Scripture. All the wrong deed and injustice that has been done throughout the world has been justified through Scripture. You can use the Scripture to fit your agenda so many ways. And God is here calling you, get behind me, Satan. That's not my agenda. What is that expectation of you today, church? Even preachers do that a lot. My job is to exegete the scripture, exegesis, which means ex means taking out of, Jesus means to interpret it. My job is taking the scripture, interpret it, and tell it as it is. But preachers, we even can sometimes ice Jesus, which means putting our agenda into the scripture and making scripture say whatever we want to do. Scripture is not just your agenda to fulfill whatever you want. Scripture is not just a political slogan. Scripture is not just your wish list fulfillment. Children, if you have a God in your mind that always agrees with you, if you have a God never contradict with you, you don't have the God of your God or Bible. You only have the God of your own imaginations and ambitions. Peter's saying, Jesus, you have, have to be this Messiah. Yet Jesus is saying, nope. You must lose your life. Those of you who are gathered here this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, well, this is not the best message to promote. I'm not the best PR person here. But don't come to Christianity because it's comfortable, because it's not. But come to it if you really believe it's true. Think about it. If the Savior, Messiah, who is talking about his identity is disclosed, is whom he claims to be, then you have reason to come to Savior. And all who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, suffering, trial, is not an optional in Christian vocabulary. It's a must. You must lose yourself. And the first suffering that you must willingly enter is death of yourself, death of your ambition, death of your expectation of all your fleshly desire. What is that for you? God, you must work this way to me. I've been praying really hard about this. You must do that to me. What is that? To the degree that you expect him to come through, you'll be much more irked by it when God does not quite come through in your timing or exactly know what you prayed about. How do you respond when your expectation is unmet, church? Is there any similarity in Peter's and disciples' expectation of Jesus and yours? What kind of Jesus do you know? Up to now, you liked all last year's Mark series. Jesus, you're powerful, you're almighty. Yay, I want that, Jesus. But now you're suffering, God. I don't want it. I don't want to die like that either. How do you realign yourself when God seems to work in contrary of what you have desired? For example, delayed answer of prayer. Trials, suffering, uncertain future. How do you realign yourself to that? Here, Jesus calling us to lose ourselves in following him. And C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this in relation to this. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes, every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. 
Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will never be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. As Jesus disclosed his messiahship to us, we want the kingdom of Victor, and he will eventually when he comes once again. But his first mission wasn't that. And Peter's and disciples don't like it. He's calling the word that he used for Satan here. How do you respond when Jesus walks like that? And he tells us to lose yourself, die to yourself. We don't like that. I don't like that. Oh, I want to live, church. I don't want to die. I don't want to die to my ambition. I think my ambitions are godly. How do I die to myself when Jesus calls me that? I see there's such a great chasm between what Jesus calls me to be and what I want to be. How do you bridge the gap today then? Right? I said, God, okay, I get that I should lose myself in following you. This life is not all about my expectation, my dream, my desire. But it's so hard to lay myself down. How do you find hope? How do you find strength to be able to overcome it and really lose yourself in following him? Look at the next passage. How do you bridge the gap? Where is our hope? When you look at the next passage here is what is known to be the famous transfiguration passage. In the Old Testament here, the brilliance of Jesus shines. When you look at Old Testament as well, there has been this kind of Old Testament version of transfiguration when God comes down in Mount Sinai, and Moses is saying, God, show me your glory in Exodus. And God said, um, if I show you my glory, you will die. So I was like, okay. So come down, and people be the tabernacle of God, Shekinah glory, where God's presence is among his people. That's the holy place where God's glory can truly dwell and be seen. But here, what happens? His glory shines, his brilliance shines. But 9 chapter 2, Peter, James, John, they do not die. Uh, they are still alive. What's going on here? Look what's going on. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be there. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Peter doesn't know what to say, but he'll say it anyway. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to say, but I'm going to say it. And what Peter is doing this, just like Old Testament, when People, Moses come down. People build a tabernacle where glory of God can dwell. The shelter used here is actually the same word as tabernacle in the Old Testament. Peter is saying, we need the same tradition, same way to go back. That's how we can see the glory of you. That's how we can get by. We need to set up tabernacle. We need to protect us from the presence of God. Yet even he says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, Peter still puts Jesus in the same rank as Moses and Elijah. But what happens in verse 8? Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, this is the Mark way of saying, Eliza and Moses are gone. Peter might have thought the tabernacle, the shelter, is what connects us to heaven and earth. But it's not Moses, neither Moses nor Eliza. It's neither tabernacle nor the shelter. Jesus, this is Mark way of saying, Jesus is the only one who can bridge the gap between heaven and earth. 
Jesus stands alone to bridge the gap between all your unfulfilled expectation and suffering reality. He's right there with you. This transfiguration is talking about glory, resurrection reality that is going to come. And it is only through Jesus alone. He is the one who is bridging the gap in all this great chasm. But even in this glorious reality, resurrection reality that is going to come, watch the way to the resurrection. Verse 12. Why then is it written that son of man must suffer much and be rejected? Even to this glorious reality of resurrection. You think, oh man, I want the glory upward, onward. Jesus doubles down. Only way to find that is through the death of yourself, through suffering, through rejection. Shetland, in this life as you live, perhaps you have many prayer requests that you are praying for. Perhaps it is your uncertain job situation. Perhaps it is for your health. Perhaps it is your desperate loneliness. Perhaps it is for your children. We all have wishes and expectations, right? And constantly you will find yourself expectation unmet. It will constantly cause you to suffer and ask, God, are you, what kind of God are you? How do you respond in that moment when your expectation is constantly unmet and your heart is constantly filled with trouble? But children, what I can tell you is Jesus is far greater than all your expectation. He is the only one who can bridge the gap. You don't want to lose yourself. How do I find the strength to lose myself in following Jesus? Look to the Savior, Jesus Christ. He is showing his glory over here, but head straight into suffering. He will soon go to the cross of Jesus Christ. From your Mark chapter 8 all the way down, rushing to the end of the chapter, it's going to be all about his passion and suffering projection, and he's going to go to the cross. And through that, he's going to save us. What, what we want, what I want is, I want to desperately hold on my ambition, church. I desperately want to hold on my desire. I desperately want to hold on my wish list. Am I even willing to lay that down? God, if this is not of you, I don't want to let this be in the way. Sometimes there will be awful long delay of your prayers being answered. God, you must come right now. You must be the king of victory who fulfill all my dreams, just like Peter says. But Jesus says, not now. I came to suffer and die, and through that you will experience heaven. Perhaps you are experiencing a death today. Gene, you are telling through the scripture me to lose myself I am losing it. Don't you know how much life terrible, how terrible situation I'm walking through? You are in the place where exactly God called you to walk through. Follow him and lose yourself. And as you follow Christ, only true life of resurrection is through the death of self and ultimately through the death of Jesus Christ. Chelton, perhaps some of you are not even thinking about it. My life is great, Jen. Why are you giving me all this Debbie Downer? Well, because that's what the Scripture calls us to do. I would love to tell you life is upward, onward. It's not at all. That's not the life Jesus is calling. But lose yourself, and then you will find yourself. What is God tugging in your heart? What is the one that you're desperately holding on today? Will you surrender that to the cross of Jesus Christ today? Do you think even our Lord Jesus Christ, his expectation has been all met? No way. You will soon see as you walk through the book of Mark. 
he was staggered at the Garden of Gethsemane. God, this is too much. Take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will alone. That is the life that Jesus is calling us to do. And he will surrender your expectation, desire, even unto death at the cross of Jesus Christ for us. So those of us who desperately want to hold on today, will you release yourself, open-handed God, take my life and let it be. You are the anointed Messiah who might not work exactly as I expect you to be, but whatever you call me, I will follow. And I'm a little scared how to go about it, God, because I don't like suffering. I don't like discomfort. But if you call me to that, I'll walk through it. Wherever you call me, I'll go. I lose myself for the glory of you in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Where do you find strength? Look to the one who lost himself at the cross. He lost himself, descended himself to the, to the deepest darkness for our sin. And through that, we find a life resurrected Savior. In Christ alone, we find hope. Let's pray together. God, in a sense, this is a heavy passage that we walk through today. God, I don't like it when you call me to die to myself. I want my desire and ambitions to be fulfilled, whether it be my desire for comfort, whether it be my desire for happiness, whether it be my desire for popularity, whether it be desire of acceptance. I want let my will be done, let my kingdom come. But God, you call all of us today to lose ourselves in the pursuit of you. And Jesus, first, you showed us how to. You lost everything at the cross for us, for love. And then the ultimate life is found because of your loss. Now we can expect this glorious eternal life because of your death and resurrection. Oh God, what is it that we are desperately holding on today? Will you reveal that to us today? How do you respond when things just go south? Oh, Lord, speak to us and reorient us, realign our expectation in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And no matter what it takes, in Jesus alone, we hope, and in Jesus alone, we live. Oh, Lord, help us in all that we do. In your precious name we pray, amen.